Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Levescu about the new book, The Last Stargazers, the enduring story of astronomy's vanishing explorers. To be an astronomer is to journey to some of the most inaccessible parts of the globe, braving mountain passes, sub-zero temperatures, and hostile flora and fauna. In The Last Stargazers, Emily Levescu rev- reveals the hidden world of the professional astronomer. She celebrates the era of ingenuity and curiosity, and asks us to think twice before we cast aside our sense of wonder at the universe. Well, Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we are going through the really unprecedented times of the global pandemic, and we're in the midst of it, really, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has this affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Um, it's It's been a very interesting couple of years, I think, for myself and a lot of people in the field of astronomy. Um, I think it surprises people that COVID-19 impacted something like studying the universe because it sounds like the most socially distant job there is. We're studying things that are billions of light years away. We travel to the most remote and dark corners of the planet, but we've really watched a substantial shift in how we do our research during the pandemic. Uh, We've learned how to do a lot of our work remotely. My colleagues and I have all been adjusting to the world of virtual or online teaching and holding all of our meetings remotely. Uh, We've missed the chances to, you know, meet each other at conferences and have the sort of casual conversations that can sometimes spark really fun research ideas. So it's been an adjustment. I know that a lot of us sort of miss each other and miss the community that you can only get from in-person interactions, but we know it's necessary right now. So we're just hoping that this passes and that we can get back to whatever a reasonable version of, you know, normal is where we can kind of exchange ideas again. Do you think you would take away some of the new habits perhaps that you developed something like uh, online meetings? I do think that some of the um, shifts to online are good. I certainly think that the accessibility strides that have been made are wonderful. The fact that a lot of meetings now by default have a broader reach is a very good thing. Um, I have a research group that meets every couple of weeks and we used to meet in person, but during the pandemic, we began meeting online. And what this meant was that former research group members or even collaborators from other institutions or other states were able to join. So from now on, I think all of my research meetings are going to have some remote component so that I can have colleagues from Arizona or Maryland or Massachusetts, like all over the country, join in. So that that degree of reach has been a nice positive change, I think. No, that's brilliant. So you already mentioned that you're an astronomer. Could you tell us more about yourself? 
Yes, so I'm an astronomy professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, and my research is focused on very literally studying stars. I study how the biggest and most massive stars in the universe evolve and die. Uh, this is something that surprises a lot of people. They don't necessarily realize that stars are born, go through a life cycle, and then die. But the physics of how stars form, how they evolve, and how they end their lives as, in the case of the stars that I study, something like a supernova that leaves behind a black hole, the physics of that is all really fascinating. So I use some of the biggest telescopes in the world and analyze the data from them and try to sort of suss out from what we can see from these stars hints about the way they work. And how did you get interested in this? So I, uh, I have... I'm one of those people that has literally been interested in their job since I was tiny. I fell in love with astronomy at a really young age, back when I was about two years old. So um, in 1986, Halley's Comet made its most recent close flyby of Earth. This is a comet that comes by about every 70 to 80 years. And when it passed close to the planet and could be observed in 1986, my big brother was asked to go observe Halley's Comet for a school project. So my whole family went out into our backyard in Southern Massachusetts and I was too, I was tired, I was fussy. I didn't want anything to do with the dark until apparently my family pointed me up and I got my first real Eiffel of the night sky. And apparently from then on, I was mesmerized. Uh, they had me look through our little backyard telescope and I loved it. And from then on, people would ask me what I was going to be when I grew up. And I said, oh, I'm going to be a firefighter or an astronomer, or I'm going to be a ballerina or an astronomer. And mm -hmm. astronomer just stuck. I wound up studying physics in undergrad as sort of a preparation for going into astronomy. I got to learn what doing astronomy was actually like, and I continued to love it. And along your scientific journey, were there any mentors or colleagues that really stood out to you being very supportive, for example? Absolutely. Um, so the first person that comes to mind is somebody who's still a close colleague of mine, Dr. Philip Massey. He's an astronomer at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I did one of my first summer research projects with him that drew me into this world of studying stars and studying weird stars and big stars and the physics of how they work. So I did what was originally designed as a summer long project with him. And we still do research together to this day. And he's been a wonderful scientific mentor, a wonderful example of how really excellent scientists work. I've also had a lot of really great role models in the field, especially in the form of some of the women who have really had to deal with uh, the field of astronomy at a time when there was much less attention paid to equity and access and inclusion. So women who were doing amazing research at a time when women were barely granted access to telescopes and were really limited in the sort of capacity that they were given to do their research. Uh, there were plenty of women who made stunning scientific contributions anyway, in spite of having to clear all these sorts of hurdles that weren't put in front of men. And it was really excellent sort of coming up in the field to see the presence of women who had really sort of fought for their place in the field and made it easier for women like me coming up behind them. And what would you say to our younger listeners and early career researchers and maybe students who are considering um, career in astronomy but may not see the representation of their community in the scientific community? So I 
something that I always found valuable, especially when I was a kid and I didn't know any professional scientists, I didn't know any astronomers, I didn't even really know where to look for role models, is I found a lot of value in seeing role models who may not have looked like me or may not have, you know, been, may not have sort of been from the same background or the same gender as I was, but who shared my sort of geeky enthusiasm and recognizing the sort of deep inside love for science and seeing that as something that I could, seeing that community as something that I could join, I really saw as a version of, okay, I am seeing role models. I am seeing myself represented, even though I may not see as many women, even though I may not see as many kids from my sort of background. Um, these are, I, I feel like these could be my people. So I would encourage them to look for those signs of representation and I would also encourage them that our field is still actively working to become a more inclusive and equitable place. And we have we have a big universe to study. We would love to have as many people as possible joining us in that project. So absolutely stick with it. It is it's a challenging job and it's a challenging um, sort of academic path to follow, but it's pretty worth it. Big universe to study. I love it. So your latest book. The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Yes. So the book is a kind of behind the scenes tour of life as a professional astronomer. And I wrote this because I wanted to give a general audience this sort of glimpse into what it's actually like to be a scientist and do science. There's lots of fantastic books out there about the science of the universe. And I wanted a book that taught people about how our cosmos works, but that also taught people how people study it. And I wanted to put a human face on a field like this, especially a field that can seem kind of remote and esoteric and far from everyday concerns. So I wanted to write this and tell the stories of my colleagues and I alongside explaining the science behind what we do, what we do to just sort of make astronomy seem more familiar and more recognizable. So let's delve into some of the science that you cover in your book. And can you tell us when our enchantment with stars begin? Oh, when humanity's enchantment with stars begins. So this is an interesting this is an interesting challenge when writing the book because humans have been doing astronomy for as long as we've been looking up. And I remember writing it and trying to decide how far back in time I wanted to go. And especially if you sort of delve into the history of this, there is um, there are amazing examples of indigenous astronomy that predate sort of written record or what we sort of traditionally think of as scientific records. Um, there were Aboriginal astronomers in Australia who had very detailed oral histories and stories of stars that we now know are very strange variables. They sort of hurl off huge amounts of mass and brighten dramatically and then dim. And we think of the study of those stars as beginning a few hundred years ago, and our real knowledge of them started way earlier. So I really do think that astronomy is one of the oldest sciences because we've always been curious about what's above us. So during uh, that, those times, were stars used for, for example, navigation by these communities? Do you know? Oh, yes. Um, 
some of the best navigators, I think, in the history of the planet were Polynesian navigators who used a really encyclopedic knowledge of the night sky to undertake amazing ocean exploration voyages. And all of that came from a really detailed knowledge of what the night sky looked like, how its appearance changed depending on where you were. It's really just astonishing science that they were doing. And what about the Western world? How our stargazing began here? Um, similarly, I think there was a great deal of curiosity and excitement about just what the night sky contained. Um, not in The Last Stargazers, but in a series of recorded lectures that I created for uh, the great courses a little while back called Great Heroes and Discoveries of Astronomy, I delve into the history of the telescope. And the telescope, as we kind of imagine it, was patented or appeared in the form that we imagine it in 1608. So the ensuing, you know, 400 odd years saw this incredible increase in our technological capability to study the universe. Um, the questions that we were able to ask every time we sort of build a new telescope and open a new eye onto the sky, we immediately come up with new questions to pose and try to answer. So that was a really interesting progression as we looked at sort of how more modern astronomy came to be. So there are different types of telescopes. Can you tell us what kind of tele telescopes are there? Um, so the most, and when people picture a telescope, they probably picture the sort of telescope that they've peered into in someone's backyard or if they go to an astronomy open house event or something like that. And these are reflecting telescopes. So they use mirrors to collect starlight and then bounce that light into a camera or in the case of the big world-class research ones into a scientific instrument of some kind. Those telescopes also specifically collect the light that we see with our eyes. Today, we have telescopes that collect light from all over the electromagnetic spectrum. So light much redder than our eyes can see, much bluer than our eyes can see. We have telescopes that detect x-rays, telescopes that detect radio waves. And the sheer design of these telescopes can be very different. Uh, the physics of studying these very different types of light can really vary. But we wind up using the whole suite of them to answer questions about how stars form, how black holes work, how the universe might have begun. A lot of the famous pictures that people have probably seen from the Hubble Space Telescope or from other NASA observatories actually composite light like the kind we can see with our eyes, along with X-ray light or ultraviolet light or infrared light. And it gives us this really amazing vivid view of whatever we're studying. So many of our listeners watched the James Webb telescope um, on the 25th of uh, December to leave this uh, planet to uh, find this place in orbit. So can you tell us what kind of telescope is it and why is it so special? Yes. So James Webb is a really exciting new telescope. It's, it's often described as the successor to Hubble, but it's a bit different than Hubble. And I'm actually really excited for an era where Webb and Hubble will both be observing at the same time. James Webb studies infrared light. So it's light that's a little redder than what we can see with our eyes. And this is an especially exciting type of light to study because it lets us study very 
dim, distant objects from very far across the universe. Now, an interesting detail about astronomy is that when you look at something very far away, you're almost looking back in time because the light from that object has been sprinting towards you at the speed of light. But if that object is, say, a thousand light years away, the light that we're just seeing now is 1,000 years old. James Webb takes this to this amazing extreme where it will be detecting light from galaxies that are almost as old as the universe itself. So it's really opening up our ability to see back to the earliest moments of the universe. James Webb is also bigger than Hubble. Its mirror is six and a half meters from end to end. So this size of the mirror means that it can collect a lot of light. The type of light that it's studying really, like I said, gives it the power to look back to the earliest moments of the universe. It's also wonderfully designed to do things like study the atmospheres of distant planets around other stars in the hopes of possibly even seeing signs of life on those planets. So by being a larger telescope and by focusing on a different sort of type of light, it really gives us a totally new way to answer a lot of the questions that we're currently posing, how the universe began, are we alone? It's going to be an amazing telescope for all of that research. So what kind of questions did you ask um, during your career? I have been really interested in figuring out how stars work. And I think this came from a fascination with black holes that I had. Even when I was a really little kid, I thought black holes were just so cool because they're these weird physics things. They like bend our brain's understanding of how space and time even work. And I got really excited by the idea that you could have a star, which at the time I figured was, you know, a fairly normal ball of gas, and how you could possibly go from a star to a black hole. Because big stars, when they die, can sometimes make black holes. And I thought that that step from normal looking to completely bizarre was really interesting. And now that I specialize in studying these sorts of stars that die and make black holes, I know that they're anything but normal. I love sort of peeling back layers and realizing how complicated and how messy the physics of these stars can be and seeing if we can try to explain it. So I ask questions like, why do stars die the way that they do? How can we tell if a star might be about to die? What different pieces of that star affect how it evolves? Does it matter if the star is spinning really quickly, if the star is orbiting another star, if the star's chemistry is weird? So I like sort of posing all of those questions and seeing if we can suss out the answer. So what kind of telescopes and instruments did you use? Could you give us a bit of a a backstage pass (laughs) on how it all works? Yes. So I... I like studying stars that are in other nearby galaxies. We can actually um, study individual stars in galaxies outside the Milky Way, which really surprises some people. We tend to think of other galaxies as these sort of little pretty spiral pictures. And in reality, we can pinpoint and study individual stars in nearby galaxies very well. To do that, it means that I'm using some of the largest telescopes that we have available to us. So telescopes with mirrors that are six, eight, 10 meters from end to end. And the specific way that I like to study these stars is a science called spectroscopy. So what this is, is gathering the light from a star. And instead of just using that light to make a picture, actually grabbing that light and sorting it out by color. So I will detect light from a star 
and then put it on a sort of plot or scientific graph with the bluest light shown at one end and the reddest light shown at the other. And if we sort the light out by color very, very closely, we can see sort of excess spikes of light or little dips where some light's been taken away. And those spikes and dips actually come from atoms or molecules in the atmospheres of those stars that interact with the light shining out of the star. It gives us this amazing ability to measure the chemistry of the star and determine a lot about how the star might have evolved, what elements are currently present in the star, what elements might currently be being made. So it's a nice way to really dig into what the star is actually physically doing. And during your journey, did you have any eureka moments when you really discovered something that you weren't expecting? So one of my favorite things that I've learned about science is that when you make a really exciting discovery, you almost never say Eureka. You're almost always staring at a computer screen going, well, that's weird, or that can't be right, or what is that? And I have had a few wonderful moments where we've looked at data from a star and gone, huh, what? Huh. And that puzzlement, that surprise that something isn't quite as you expect is very often the first sign that you're doing something really cool. So my colleagues and I, and this is a story that I tell in The Last Stargazers, discovered what we think is a new type of star back in 2014. And that discovery came out of studying the detailed chemistry of a bunch of cold, dying stars, wondering if some of them might have this sort of weird signature that would indicate that these were a new type of star that we were looking for. These are stars called thorn Zhitkov objects. They're named after Kip Thorne and Anna Zhitkov, the two astronomers who first predicted that they would exist. And they're stars that basically have cores working differently than most stellar cores do. Instead of being supported by sort of a nuclear fusion process in their cores, they're actually supported by these weird principles of quantum physics. So we thought we might be able to search for these stars. We knew that their chemical signatures were the way to do it. And when our data from these stars started coming in, we saw a chemically odd looking star, but not in the way we expected. And we went, hmm, that's that's very strange. I, w- I wonder what this star could possibly be. And after months of digging into it and exploring what we thought was really going on, we realized that contrary to our expectations, this was the sort of star we'd been looking for. So it was a great discovery, but it started with that wonderful phrase of, well, that's odd. I wonder what's going on. So can you tell us how is star born? How stars are born. So stars form in these, if if anybody's seen the beautiful Hubble pictures of something like the Orion Nebula or these beautiful, delicate looking multicolored gas clouds, these are what we sometimes think of as stellar nurseries. So places where new stars are born. Stars will actually form when a big cloud of gas and dust starts to become a little too massive for its size or basically thinking of it another way, it starts to get a little too squished and small for its mass. Those clouds will start to collapse in on themselves. The cloud will fragment and the fragments will start to collapse. And as those bundles of gas collapse and shrink and get denser and denser and hotter, that is the process by which a star sort of ignites. Eventually that gas is so hot that the very core heart of that collapsing gas will be able to start fusing hydrogen into helium. And when that process kicks off, you've birthed a new star. So we see this process happening. There's a lot of complicated details regarding exactly how long this takes, the role that different types of gas or dust can play. But we see this happening 
all over our galaxy and other galaxies. Um, and there's people whose entire specialty is just studying how stars are born and exactly how this works. And what about how do they die? So the stars that I study, these pretty massive stars, die when that process that I just talked about, the sort of ignition of fusion, comes to a halt. During stars' lifetimes, they maintain this very delicate balancing act between the sort of inward squeeze of their own gravity and outward force produced by fusion in their core. So fusing hydrogen into helium or at later stages in the star's lives when they've run out of hydrogen, fusing helium into carbon or carbon into even heavier elements. Stars will fuse heavier and heavier elements until they reach a state where they have a core made of iron. Now, Iron is a weird element because to fuse iron, you need to take energy from your surroundings. If you fuse hydrogen, you're generating energy, but fusing hydrogen takes energy. So if a big star suddenly has a core made of iron, that perfect delicate balancing act between fusion and gravity is now disrupted because that core can't generate any more energy. When that happens, the star's core collapses in less than a second, and the outer layers go tumbling after it and then bounce off of the dense core of the star that's been left behind. And that bounce off gives us this incredible fireworks show that we see as a supernova. And the core at the heart of the star leaves behind sometimes a black hole, other times something that we call a neutron star, which is this tiny leftover dead husk of a stellar core supported by the same principles of quantum physics that we were studying in Thorndjikov objects. This, this specific way that stars die happens to stars that are much more massive than our sun. They have a mass of at least 10 times as much as our sun or more. But these are the types of dying stars that I'm really interested in studying. So it wouldn't be the case with our sun. No, our sun will undergo a very different sort of end of its life. Um, our sun will live much longer than these very massive stars. So we've got billions of years left in our sun, so no one should worry. But eventually our sun will sort of puff up and cool off and become what we call a red giant. It'll grow enormously in size, but its temperature will also cool rapidly. Eventually the outer layers of our sun will get puffed off, will leave behind something called a white dwarf, sort of a leftover um, cooling core of the sun, and our sun will die a fairly quiet and relaxed death, but over again, billions and billions of years. So as we think about the people who are doing the stargazing, so scientists like you or somebody who's doing it just for a hobby, do you think this landscape is starting to shift nowadays? One of the things that I was really eager to write about in The Last Stargazers is how the world of stargazing is changing. And it's been changing at every level. Um, at a professional level, astronomy has really immensely benefited from the advent of computers, from being able to take digital images, and nowadays from the ability to really deal with enormous amounts of data and conduct huge surveys of the night sky. So the computational power available in our field is really changing the types of questions we're able to answer and the types of research we're able to do. 
At an amateur level, I think there continue to be more and more resources for getting into amateur astronomy. I think people think of amateur astronomy sometimes and they picture somebody with a big, expensive, fancy backyard telescope. And you can be an amateur astronomer with the naked eye. You can identify a lot of things in the night sky just using an app on your phone, or you can do really great observing with binoculars. And I keep hoping that amateur astronomy will become a broader and more accessible field at all times. At the same time, we do also have amateur astronomers with very elaborate, fantastic setups that are able to make research contributions that people in the professional world of astronomy use all the time. So it's it's wonderful to see these fields evolving and to see the two fields sort of exchanging ideas and information. And what about the issue of light pollution? I think many of our listeners would have heard the space junk problem, for example, or too many satellites being put into orbit that can be in, can interfere with the amateur uh, stargazers. Is there any reason to worry? Uh, I, th- I think there is, unfortunately, and I have colleagues who are working on trying to mitigate this problem, but it's a serious concern. Um, and for context for listeners who may not be as familiar with this, um, there are satellite constellations currently being launched. Um, a, an infamous one is Starlink, which is a SpaceX project um, that are aiming to launch tens of thousands of small satellites into low Earth orbit. And the danger with these is that they're huge potential sources of light pollution in the night sky. These satellites will reflect sunlight. They wind up showing up as sort of little dots streaking through the night sky. And they're an issue for amateur astronomers because you will start to see more and more of these crowding the night sky. They're an issue for professional astronomers because when we train an enormous telescope on a patch of sky, if satellites like these pass through that patch of sky during an observation, the observation is ruined. And it's not something that we can just back solve or fix computationally. Those satellites have blocked our view of things we're trying to study. They even cause problems at other wavelengths. Radio astronomers, for example, have serious concerns about these satellites because they emit radio um, signals. So I have colleagues who are trying to work with SpaceX or work with the FCC, which is currently approving all of the U.S. launches of these satellites in the hopes that we can sort of minimize the damage that they're starting to have on our view of the night sky. Now, obviously, we don't want to stop all satellite launches and um, things like improving telecommunications, improving the technology that depends on satellites is important, but we need to do this carefully and I don't think that these sorts of launches should just be sort of unquestioningly approved. We need to consider the impact that they're having on the night sky. So what do you see or want to see in the future of stargazing? Oh, what do I want to see in the future of stargazing? So I I think part of this question comes from uh, the title of my book. So I've had people ask me about this title, The Last Stargazers. And it sounds like it might be making for a depressing book. And in fact, I think that it's anything but. Um, the title's in part a reference to the way that technology has been changing astronomy, like we just talked about. It's also meant to be a little bit of a challenge because we see the encroachment of light pollution. We see the amazing power of computers and automation, but a effect that sometimes can feel like it's removing people and human curiosity from the front lines of stargazing and astronomy. But 
I mean, p- plenty of people still stargaze every day. Sometimes we do it for our jobs. Sometimes we just do it for the pleasure of it. And I want people to continue recognizing and kind of harnessing that passion, even as we see changes to our night sky and changes to technology that we use to stargaze. We're going to see our scientific capabilities keep growing, but we still want to keep an eye on the role that people play in discovery, that we still need stargazers. We are, our curiosity and our questions about the universe are what drive the work that we do. And I want that to continue to stay the same, even as the technology continues to grow. And on even on a local level, what do you think are the best ways to bring the stargazers back, especially thinking about the environmental concerns of light pollution, for example, or trying to keep uh, some parks really pristine to really preserve that black sky for people to look at? Yes, there are some excellent dark sky initiatives going on um, all over the world now. And there are some cities in the US on Flagstaff, Arizona, where Lowell Observatory is, is famously already a dark sky city. They focus on trying to minimize light pollution and preserve dark skies. Um, This is fantastic from a purely energy efficiency standpoint. If we want to use lights at night, we want the light to be going down toward the ground where we need it rather than up into the night sky. So having more efficient lights is a pragmatic environmental positive. And keeping the night sky preserved is also obviously excellent for stargazing purposes. So I'd say anybody interested in this at the local level, it would be great to get into campaigns and missions for minimizing light pollution, making your town or your city a dark sky town or city, and seeing if we can make sure to preserve dark skies everywhere and extraordinarily dark skies in some of the remote parts of the planet where we do our professional observing. And now thinking about the bigger picture, I suppose you already think about the universe, so maybe just a (laughs) bit of a smaller picture than a whole universe. So what would be the key implications of exploring uh, this field for our society, both from uh, in, in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of development of new technologies? Oh, this is a... This is a very interesting question, and it's one that I write about uh, near the end of The Last Stargazers, because people ask, you know, why is astronomy worth it? What is the importance of studying space, and why do we why do we keep doing this? And there are some practical applications in that we are, for example, constantly um, pushing the edge of imaging technology. We want to build the best and sharpest and most precise cameras we possibly can in astronomy. And that sort of work can inevitably sort of trickle down to other pursuits. But I think a lot of the appeal of astronomy comes from a sort of more fundamentally human place. I I don't see us studying the way that stars work or surveying distant planets because we're going to suddenly find the key to energy independence or because we're suddenly going to invent some new technology. Now, science always surprises us. We will make scientific discoveries that seem novel and interesting now that wind up being technologically invaluable later on. The discovery of the electron and then an eventual world that runs on electronics is a great example. But in the immediate study of the universe, we're largely just explaining the world around us because it's cool. And I think that there's a fundamentally human nature to being curious about the world around us and whether that's our immediate neighborhood versus whether that's our whole universe. That's a very good reason to keep doing it. It gets at a fundamental part of our humanity and it helps us understand 
the planet around us, the solar system around us, the galaxy around us better, which can only be a good thing in the long term for how we, our relationship with the universe. I'm sorry, that didn't stay as small as you wanted me to. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's great. <laughs> so what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The Last Stargazer, surprised you the most? I, it was fun because as part of writing this book, I interviewed more than a hundred of my colleagues. I wanted to gather the stories from colleagues that had observed at telescopes that had used telescopes 30, 40, 50 years ago when the technology was really different. And I really just wanted to gather their adventure stories. And I also knew that I didn't want the book to just be an anecdote collection. The book really does track uh, my own career in astronomy and how the world of astronomy is changing. So as part of the interviews, I realized I couldn't just let people story tell much as I loved listening to it. I wanted to ask a few consistent questions. And I loved hearing my colleagues' different answers to things like what would surprise people the most about our jobs. I asked everybody what they thought the biggest disconnect is between what people think astronomers do and what we actually do. And I got answers explaining, you know, we don't tend to look through telescopes anymore. We don't peer through an eyepiece with our eyes. We wind up taking data digitally and looking at digital pictures or digital spectrographs or digital data of what we study. And it's a simple detail, but it's an important one when people start to imagine what being an astronomer is like. I also was just surprised, I guess not surprised, but it was reassuring to hear the sheer enthusiasm and excitement from so many of my colleagues telling me about their favorite memories of working on a mountain at a telescope, their wildest adventure stories, which were always so much more extraordinary than I'd ever imagined. It was really great to sort of get this broad scope of what life as an astronomer is really like. I think I've got a bit of a silly question. <laughs> so do you work a day during the day or during the night? No, this is a great question. Um, and I've, I've had people ask me this. I've told people on airplanes that I'm a professional astronomer and they've looked at me kind of like, well, how are you awake right now? You must be nocturnal. So I and a lot of my colleagues spend most of our time working during the day because we spend a lot of time analyzing and processing the data that we take from a telescope. Now, my sorts of observations studying stars, I tend to use the same kind of light that we see with our eyes or maybe infrared light. And this light is best studied at night. So when I go to a telescope, I do shift over to a nighttime schedule. I do observe in the middle of the night and run the telescope and get the data that I need. But one or two nights of work at a telescope can sometimes create months of work on a laptop, analyzing the data, figuring out what it's telling us, writing up a research paper. So most of my work is done during the day, but I will occasionally have to shift over to a night schedule in order to get some of my observations. I have other colleagues whose telescopes can run day or night. Um, radio astronomers studying radio light can observe regardless of what time of day it is. Um, I have colleagues who work at telescopes. Um, a group that I talk about in the book are telescope operators. So people who are professionally trained to run and operate these enormous, complicated scientific instruments, and they will work for weeks at a time on a night schedule, keeping the telescopes running for astronomers who are coming in to use them for our research. So it varies a bit, but we're not all entirely nocturnal like somebody might imagine. Wow, great. So my next question should make sense then. So what kind of questions just still keep you up at night and get, uh, make you really get up out of the bed in the morning? 
<laughs> um, I, I am still just really fascinated by trying to explain how stars die. Um, when you think about a supernova, when you think about a, this sort of fireworks show that marks the end of a star's life, we haven't had a supernova visible to the naked eye in our galaxy in over 400 years. We have had exactly one supernova visible to the naked eye in recent history. It happened in 1987. I actually tell that supernova story in the book, including the story of the person who happened to spot the supernova with his naked eye, but it happened in a neighboring galaxy to ours. One big challenge of studying these stellar explosions is that we can't predict them. We can't point at a star and say, that star is going to die as a supernova in 2042, or it's going to die in a hundred years or tomorrow. We don't have a way of predicting it. So we have to wait for a supernova to happen right now in a very distant galaxy that we can only spot with the help of telescopes and then sort of back solve. It's like, you know, showing up at the scene of a crime and then trying to figure out the culprit and the story of what happened. So I am very curious about getting to a point where we might be better at predicting this, where we might be able to build a closer relationship between what a star is doing and what kind of supernova it might make or when that supernova might happen. And I would really love to keep working in this field and sort of build that bridge and make that connection clearer. And I don't know if you watched the recent movie, Don't Look Up, but when you see astronomers being portrayed in the, in the films, do you always scrutinize their methods and the things they say for, for them to be scientifically accurate? <laughs> um, it's funny because we don't, we don't see that many astronomers in films. Um, and I think, I think we're a fascinating bunch. I think there's a lot of very realistic, accurate movies that could be made out of some of the stories that are in this book, let alone some of the other tales in the field. So when you do see an astronomer in a movie like Don't Look Up or like Contact or Deep Impact, you can't help but sort of look at that and say, oh gosh, it's, it's my job on screen. Are they getting it right? And um, I know that with Don't Look Up, I was watching my colleagues on Twitter who were watching the movie and live tweeting saying things like they're working at this big, beautiful telescope, but they have the lights on inside the dome. And in reality, you want a telescope to be as dark as possible. At the same time, I can sympathize with the filmmakers and say, you know, it's pretty hard to shoot an exciting opening scene of a movie in total pitch darkness. So you allow a little bit of creative license. What I what I most wish was better depicted in films about astronomers and films about scientists in general is that scientists are often imagined as sort of very one-note characters. They only do science. Um, they're typically depicted as not very good at communicating with the public or communicating even with their colleagues about their work. And in reality, scientists are a very diverse group of people. Um, a lot of us really prize the ability to communicate because we need to be able to talk to each other in order to solve sort of scientific puzzles. And we need to be able to talk to people who aren't in our field in order to explain why it's interesting, why it's worth investment, why it's worth doing what we do. So I would love to see a broader range of, I guess, personalities depicted in science. Um, you can leave the lights on in the dome if you must for a good um, for a good camera shot, but I think keeping an eye on how you depict scientists would be sensible. And of course, there's a wide range of adventures that actual astronomers actually have. So I think, like I said, there could be some very good realistic depictions of what astronomy is actually like in the movies that people would really enjoy. 
<laughs> now and then we can allow the artistic uh, license, give them an artistic license to be a little bit inaccurate. Or if I, I guess another way to put it is if anybody ever did want to shoot a movie that really did portray astronomers accurately, it would have to be done with a lot of care and attention. Again, I think it would be a fascinating movie, but you'd have to figure out how to, say, shoot a scene that is in total darkness. Now, movies have tricks for showing us what things look like at night or lighting a nighttime scene, but it would need to be done sort of very aware of what the reality of astronomy is like. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yes. So um, I'm I'm working as a professor at the University of Washington. I have a lot of fascinating research going on. I have a great group of students working with me. So we're all keeping very busy with our own projects. In terms of my next project, like The Last Stargazers, I'm actually currently working on a next lecture series to be released with uh, Wondrium and The Great Courses um, for listeners who are familiar. So this new series is on very strange phenomena in the universe. Now, it's still in the works, so I don't think I can share too many details of it yet, but it explores the physics and science and sort of discovery tales of some of the strangest objects that we study. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to putting that lecture series together and filming it over the next about year, year and a half. I'm also exploring other potential books along the same lines as The Last Stargazers that, again, tell these sort of dual stories of the science of our field along with the people of our field. There are some decade-long sweeping stories of ongoing questions that we've asked in the field, things like how the universe is going to end or is there life out there in the universe? And I really think these are wonderful stories to bring to readers because whether or not you're a professional astronomer, you can appreciate the curiosity and excitement of these stories. And I think they're stories that should be shared. Oh, wow. Looking forward to those. <laughs> so what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? So you can find more information about the book at thelaststargazers.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is E-M-S-Q-U-E. So the beginning of my first name and then the end of my last name. And if you follow the hashtag, The Last Stargazers, you can see sort of running updates on the book. My professional research website is also at emlevesque.com. If you're curious about learning more about what my research group and I are getting up to in terms of studying big weird stars. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.